you would open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. I have been looking forward to tonight for quite some time. We find ourselves tonight at the end of our time examining relationships. With this, the last message in the series. And my assignment is to speak to you on grace and redemption. As this series on truth and love was being formed originally, tonight's topic was absent from the roster. But some words of caution were spoken by one of the leaders. For the sake of shame, you have heard God's will regarding relationships. But if you have failed, since you have failed to keep his word, how must you respond? It seems to me that there's really no more fundamental way to break the law than to break it at the place of relational love. Whether that is love for others or love for God. To love perfectly is to fulfill the whole law and to fail to love perfectly is to break the whole law. So we are in and of ourselves but a band of criminals. The sexually immoral, idolaters and adulterers. And so tonight, it is my joy to urge you, come to Christ. Dirty things cannot cleanse themselves. You need no novel numbness or a more satisfying significant other. What you need is the righteousness of God. You need God to see you through a lens soaked in the blood of Christ that all your sins, though they stain you crimson, may be seen white as snow. We latch on to phrases like Justified, forgiven, saved. And we are so joyful and so grateful at such a proclamation, but it is in reality so maltreated because we take it for granted and we don't realize that in truth, the fact that God declares you forgiven is the greatest theological issue of the entire Bible. How can God justify the wicked? How can he be just and yet justify you? Let me show you. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The law and the prophets is a way of describing the whole Old Testament. The entire Old Testament speaks of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It speaks of our gospel, of our Christ, who is himself the gospel. And without saying his name, shows him to be the crescendo which the symphony of the Old Testament anticipates and leads us to. Where do we see this? He is the better sacrifice, which need not be sacrificed again. He is the better priest who sat down at the right hand of the Father because his work is finished to Telestai. He is the better prophet, not merely a proclaimer of God's word, but the word made flesh. He is the better Adam. Turn a few pages to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, that is Adam, the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that is Christ, the many will be appointed righteous. So that even in the fall of Adam, and even in the curse of God upon creation, there is a Messiah foretold. There is one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so the varied accounts and prescribed customs of the Old Testament witness to us about the righteousness of God. But Paul says this is no longer a future hope. Apart from the witnessing of the law, the righteousness of God has become manifested to us. And we need not look forward to salvation as the saints of old did, but we look back to its accomplishment. And what is this righteousness that he speaks of? It is not a practical righteousness. This is not about you being a good person or obeying the law. The Old Testament law is not the revelation that you should live a certain way and so be accepted or saved because of it. This is imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. If I had a list of all of your thoughts and deeds and beliefs, imputation would be writing your name at the top of the list to lay the blame of all of that at your feet. That's what imputation means. It means to lay blame. Christian, would you see the difference? It is God's righteousness, but look at the text. It's for you. It's as if He took all your sins and He wrote them down on a lengthy and loathsome scroll 
And he took all of Christ's righteousness, which he continues to accrue even to this very moment. And he wrote all that on an infinite scroll. But at the top of the scroll of the spotless Lamb of God, he wrote your name. And at the top of your scroll, the scroll of your damnation, he wrote Christ's name. And this gift is yours. If only you have faith. That is the only consideration. It is the only distinction. There is no distinction in Christ. There is no male or female, Jew or Greek. But similarly, there is no distinction in condemnation. You are not a country boy or a cowgirl, an athlete or a geek, an introvert or an extrovert. These things are not your identity and in light of eternity they are utterly worthless. Would you just let go of such man-made means of identification? They are invalid and they are fabrications. Frankly, usually used as an excuse not to obey. You are either justified or you are a sinner. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why there's no distinctions. That's why there's no distinctions made for those who might believe. Because all need to be saved. Yes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, but it is level in the valley below as well. All have sinned and all continue to fall short of the glory of God. If you think that your sin is small, then you will never think much of salvation. And if you think that your sin is small, frankly, it's because you don't know the first thing about God. To sin is to fall short of His glory. To fall short of the glory of the God of the entire universe. Infinite in glory. Perfect in justice, patience, mercy. Everything that you aren't. Everything that apart from Him, you aren't. This is no small chasm, for He is no small God. Verse 10, a little bit above, says that there is none good, not even one. You are not the good guy of the story. You are not the main character. Christianity is about the protagonist, the hero, coming down and dying for the villains who killed him. Who do you think we are in that equation? You deserve nothing good. You deserve everything painful. Every deprivation of joy and beauty. Every plight and agony. And how arrogant we are to demand of God How can you let bad things happen to good people? There are no good people. You arrogant man. That God, the real question, the real question of the scriptures, 
is not how does God let bad things happen to good people. That only happened once. The real question is, how can God know my thoughts and words and deeds and not kill me this very moment? I am a man, I am a man of unclean lips. I deserve not the honor to open his word. Bunyan said, Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. And it is this sin for which Christ was blamed. And it was the glory of God which Christ perfectly lived all his life, even to this moment, for which you are blamed. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace. This is of grace. It's a gift, not a wage. Unearnable, unmeritable. All your works do apart from Christ is make you worse of a sinner and make you more fit for hell. Yet, we are justified. Justification is something of an announcement. A legal announcement. Those who are in Christ are legally declared righteous. Right with God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified, having been declared right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are overjoyed. But really, the question is, how can he get away with this? How can he love such a putrid mass of evil like me? How can he love the unlovely How can he justify the wicked and yet still be called just? The text answers. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Grace and redemption. You are justified through redemption. This is not a redemption arc. That's not what it means. It's not Zuko or Vader. That's not the idea. It means to pay a ransom. To redeem. To buy. Specifically, it means to pay the ransom for a slave. You have been redeemed. Bought by a new slave master. That's why Christ says on the cross to Telestai, it is finished, paid in full. It's a term that comes from the marketplace. It's like a verbal receipt. MacArthur has this to say, the imagery behind this Greek word comes from the ancient slave market. 
It means paying the necessary ransom to obtain the prisoner or slave's release. The only adequate payment to redeem sinners from sin's slavery and its deserved punishment was in Christ and was paid to God to satisfy his justice. Turn to Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over. And having been freed from sin, you, have, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then having from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Now, having been free from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit, leading to sanctification and the end, eternal life. You were, you are, and you will forever be a slave. You have never not been a slave, you will never not be a slave. Either a slave of sin or a slave of God. The Greek word doulos means slave. It's been euphemized by modern Bible translators because of the connotation it now carries due to American history. And I realize that it might sound like a bit of an unappetizing term to you, but I assure you it hit pretty different for the first century believers who read the New Testament that were actually slaves. Paul didn't euphemize it then. I'm not about to euphemize it now. And if I get to the gates and Christ looks at me and says, well done, good and faithful servant, I will weep for the demotion. I have no desire to hang up my Christian uniform at the end of a shift like some busboy. I am a slave. By the grace of God, as Ravenhill used to say, I have no will of my own. I have no rights of my own. I exist only for the will of my master. The Christian has no more desire to be their own slave master than they do to be their own father or be their own spouse. They want God in every sense of the relationship. Father, bridegroom, savior, Slave master. And the man who wants only grace, but no redemption, is trifling with Christianity and in reality wants nothing to do with the God of the Bible. If you are a Christian, you have been bought. 
and enslaved to God. And it is through this ransom, through this redemption, by His grace, which grants you justification, grants you peace with God. But if we just stop there, none of this makes any sense. You have to keep reading. Verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Trace what Paul is doing here. There are three main terms. Justified. Redemption. Propitiation. And through these, Paul is tracing the steps of salvation. What had to happen for him to procure a people? He's giving the sequential regression of justification. He begins with the product, justified, justification. And he is tracing back its roots. That you are justified by grace through redemption, which was itself a propitiation. I think David Guzik made this observation. Justification comes from the legal realm. Redemption comes from the realm of the slave market. Propitiation comes from the realm of religion. And it's these three, bre- three beads, excuse me, which Paul strings together so masterfully which make up the very heart of the gospel. But if you don't understand propitiation, then you can't understand how it all coheres. If we fail here, we fail everywhere. We won't understand how we're justified. We won't understand how it's grace. We won't understand how redemption fits into that. And we won't understand why it's an imputed righteousness in verse 22, not a practical righteousness. Propitiation. To propitiate means to appease, to turn back wrath, and to acquire favor. Listen carefully. God's wrath wasn't merely turned away. His wrath against your sin wasn't turned away and simply forgotten. God can't just wink or shrug his shoulders at sin. His righteousness and his wrath from a violated righteousness must be expressed. God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God waited with wrath. He waited to judge. He waited and let Adam and Eve breathe a second evil, sinful breath. So that he could manifest and put on display his righteousness in Paul's day. 
more specifically, in Christ's day on the cross. And he displayed his righteousness through propitiation and imputation. Biblical idea of imputation goes further than simply laying blame. Oh, God laid blame. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is the great exchange. He got our sin. We got his righteousness. But God not only laid the blame for your sins on Christ, he also then treated Christ as if he was to blame for your sins. And God the Father crushed and killed his only begotten Son on your behalf. Whose plan was this? Verse 25, whose plan was this? Whom God displayed. God put Christ on display as a propitiation. John 10, 18, speaking of his life, Jesus says, no one takes it away from me, but from myself I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Christ went to the cross voluntarily. He was a willing substitute. And we love that, but somehow we never finish the verse. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Who made Christ sin? God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This wasn't a mere reaction to circumstances. It was the plan all along. Acts 2.23, speaking of Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. God was not a mere bystander in the crucifixion. Isaiah 53. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him. Scriptures say that you are saved from many things. Matthew 1, you're saved from our sins. Acts 2, we're saved from this crooked generation. James 5, we're saved from death. But most importantly, Romans 5, 9. We are saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from God himself. Do you really think that Christ, as Washer says, the champion of our faith, sat in the garden sweating great drops of blood just because he was afraid of the physical pain of crucifixion? He prayed, let this cup pass from me. What was he afraid of? What was in the cup? 
Isaiah 51, 17. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh the cup of his wrath, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. Verse 22 of that same chapter. Thus says your Lord, Yahweh, even your God, who contends for his people, Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my wrath. Psalm 75, 8. For a cup is in the hand of Yahweh, and the wine foams. It is full of his mixture. And he pours from this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. Jeremiah 25. For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will bring among them. Revelation 14. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and receives his image, uh, and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, and he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And that same Lamb drank of the same cup. The cup that Christ drank was filled to the brim with the wrath of God. Same wrath poured out in Revelation. Same wrath endured by sinners in hell. That's why it had to be Christ. Only God could bear His own wrath in its entirety and satisfy justice, propitiate and appease Himself. God is righteous, and you are not. He is just, but you were not justified in your actions. So God came as a man, and He justified you. He mended the relationship you shattered. He declared you to be righteous by His grace through the act of redeeming, of ransoming, of buying you. And by what kind of payment did He make the purchase? By His own blood. By paying the debt which your sin accrued for you. By paying the debt of the infinite wrath of Almighty God. And doing so justly, because he volunteered to be blamed for your sins and treated as such. And so propitiated the Father, satisfied his justice, who still required justice to be satisfied, because he had left the sins of our forefathers passed over, that he might manifest his righteousness in Christ on the cross, so that he might still be just as he justifies the wicked. This is the truth of the love of God poured out for his people. 
This truth should have a vice grip on all of your insights, actions, beliefs about relationships. This is the rudder that guides all decisions. The gospel is true north as you navigate every aspect of life. And this is the cure for every psychological need of your person. I told you that tonight exists to address your R, sexual sins. So what does this change? My dear brother, my dear sister, if what the law could not do, God came and did himself. If Christ has come as an offering for sin, if the cup is empty, Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The eyes of God have been soaked in the blood of the Lamb, that now, for all your scarlet sins, he sees only white as snow. You have peace with God. He declared you justified, right with him. He bought you, and you knew exactly what he was purchasing. Your sins do not accrue new wrath. Every sin was written on the ledger Christ bore, and he drank every drop. It is finished. And never forget, the ledger you gave to Christ, if you are a true believer, the ledger you gave to Christ ends. For you will be glorified. But the ledger Christ gave to you of all of his righteousness never ends. He continues to add to it this very moment. From his birth till now, every good work of the spotless Lamb of God on your ledger, and another, and another, and another, and another. You are not merely free from sin. He didn't just wipe away the sin. He didn't just bring you to net zero. You have the acquisition of the positive. You are honored as if you were Christ himself. Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you are single, your singleness is not a shame and it's not subhuman to go on with unexpressed sexuality. Christ was the most perfect, most human man to ever be is, I should say, he still is human. He was single his whole life, undistracted, 
solely devoted to pleasing God. And remember, you are already a spouse to the king himself. Bride to the Christ himself. And though it might seem that others will not choose you, he chose you before the foundations of the world. And while it might feel like others see being with you as repulsive, remember that it is the final act of the book. For you to join Christ for the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is your marriage supper. Where you will be, not sexually, but perfectly, united with Christ and with all believers, even those who rejected you. The need for, for propitiation, the covering which Christ's sacrifice supplies, is something which everyone, believer or not, unwittingly confesses their need for every time they get dressed. Do you know why clothes were invented? Because man knew that we needed to be covered. And in the garden we tried to cover ourselves, but we failed. The covering was inadequate. But God being rich in mercy, crushed and killed a sacrifice. And from that sacrifice furnished coverings for our first parents. I think that's why even in Revelation we're still described as wearing clothes. We don't return to being naked. For though we will be perfect, that glory is provided by the covering Christ. If you are married or plan to be, what do you think the purpose of marriage is? Is it not to image this gospel? Is it not to be a silhouette of Christ's love for the church? In fact, when describing the role of a husband, Paul goes back to this exact moment. The sacrifice of Christ in love for his bride. How do you deal with breakups? With a significant other or even just with a friend? But that you remember that this righteous God made you in his image. And nobody's thoughts of you can affect that. And you remember that you deserve a lot worse of a hell than being rejected by a mere man or woman. You deserve to be rejected by God himself. But he justified you. And he redeemed you. And he propitiated God's wrath for you. And though someone might not want you, God adopted you. And God himself is betrothed to you, the church. (laughs) 
if you fail to keep God's word with these. Since you fail to keep God's word. Would you remember why we keep it in the first place? Verse 31. The last verse of the chapter. Do we then abolish the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. We obey in response to God's love, not to earn it. We love in response to how God sees us, not to get him to see us in a certain way. We love in response to the fact that he has declared us justified, righteous, perfect, without blemish. Not in order to get him to declare us justified. See, legalism, legalism is anachronistic morality. Obeying because of something in the future rather than something in the past. And finally, remember who you are in Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Remember your identity. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You are not a band of criminals. The sexually immoral, an idolater or adulterer. Yes, you sin, but your sin is covered. Christ has come to you, and he has declared what you are justified by his grace and redemption. Let's pray. God, there's not a word that I could say. There's not a million words that I could say that could capture your gospel. God, I wish I could have made it bigger and grander that they would see the love of their Father more clearly. God, do in them what I can't. 
illuminate your word to them. Lord, would you bring their hearts to love you more than anything else? God, we love you. We praise you in your name. Amen.